Rip Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. And thank you so much for listening. We've now recorded over 25 episodes with some of the best guitarists in the world, and we don't plan on slowing down. We're so stoked that you're enjoying the topics we are covering. Please share us with your friends and give us a tag. You can find me on Instagram at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A.R. Levy. And that's at A.R. Levy U-R-M Audio. That's E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. If you want to give us a review, then we especially love iTunes reviews. We will never charge you for this podcast. All we ask is that you give us a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Mark Volalunga, who plays guitar for nothing more. Mark Volalunga, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Hello. I'm, I'm Hello. impressed you actually said that well. <laughs> Why? You did. You nailed it. I can't tell you how many times my name's been butchered forever. <laughs> that was good. I, I relate. Um, I can do anything that's got a Latin origin. Well, not French, but uh, it's the uh, Eastern European and Nordic names that I just can't fuck with. <laughs> I I hear you there. I have some Swedish cousins, and ah uh, uh, yes. my aunt lives up there, and so all, all the all the Luke. J's and all the triple consonants and things like that. It's like nope, not even gonna yeah. try. <laughs> there's a there's a couple of yeah. weird Swedish words like hukkasta, uh, which is like really hukkasta, huk huk, huk. And, wow, one, that's and that awesome. just, that means sick. Huk. <laughs> Wow, yeah. that's awesome. Dude, I've in playing in Scotland, it's like, oh man, learning like the just the slang or whatever. And all I man, for the longest time it was like that I was trying to learn, you know, after the show, after you've had many drinks and you're and you're just <laughs> talking to That's the perfect time to learn a language. Dude, <laughs> totally. Yeah. It's like good food. And it was like go around and go fuck yourself or something like that. I forget what it was, but it was just like, how is this? I can't even, because it is English, you know what I mean? It is, but yeah. Ish. Ish, yeah. <laughs> uh, my stepdad is uh, Scottish. Yeah, yeah, English is. But my, my stepdad's Scottish, but I could not, for the life of me, understand his father. It was yeah. so, so fast and like, almost like, you know, like when you've got a doctor and he writes you a prescription, and it's always like you can never really understand what's been written on the prescription. It's like that, but spoken. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> and I was reading something interesting that uh, Southern English is the closest American dialect to English English, which is kind of surprising. That's actually true. You know, like the true South? The true, the true South, like the the prim and proper... Yes, the prim and proper, like old school Southern accent is actually the closest thing we've got here to old school. I'm not sure which version of English English, because there's 8 million of them, but uh, <laughs> from across the pond, that's the closest thing we've got, which is weird. That is, yeah, I wouldn't guess that. I definitely no, wouldn't it, either. <laughs> I wouldn't have either, but it's true. But I have a question. I heard about something you did, which I had wanted to try about 15 years ago. And then 
it just seemed like such a fucking hassle that I never did it. I wanted to convert my uh, band's van before we were signed to vegetable oil because I was trying to figure out how do we do this without, you know, without being signed, no tour support. How do we tour, 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 tour? And it was like vegetable oil. But I heard that you drive around smelling like a McDonald's and that it's a lot harder than it seems. Yes, to both of those, but it honestly doesn't smell that bad. It has a smell, but typically we would always stay away from any fast food restaurants. More often than not, we would go to Chinese and Asian restaurants where they use peanut oil. It's a lot cleaner and there's a lot less animal fat and stuff in there. But seriously, we would like... It sounds super shady and, and we'd be weird, but we'd be like sneaking up, you know, like behind their restaurant and like <laughs> put our pump in and then just start pumping a lot of the time. Switches, it is illegal. However, it's like the restaurant typically has to pay somebody to get rid of it and go filter it to get, you know, new grease and get rid of their old grease and all of that. So a lot of times we'd be, you know, touring and we'd pull up to, you know, wherever we are, Chinese restaurant and, you know, try to talk to the guys and they would more often than not, again, be totally down for us to go back there and just take a little bit because we would only, you know, we had a 55 gallon drum or barrel drum or whatever in the back of our sprinter van. And yeah, we would only take like, you know, it's a 250 gallon or more grease tank. So the amount that we were taking was only just a little bit most of the time. So even those companies that would come and collect it wouldn't even notice. But to kind of keep on that, yeah, we we did save tens of thousands of dollars, um, you know, not spending it on on gas for sure. It was a hassle. Um, it was very dirty. I had dreads at the time and <laughs> you know, we had it like in the van, you know, and we had bunks there too. So sometimes, you know, we'd hit a bump and it's like, you know, I got grease all over my pillow and, uh, you know, in my hair. I mean, not, you know, with dreads, it's like, well, I don't know what's in there anyway. So <laughs> Conditioner, you know. How hard was it to figure that out? Or is there someone who's like a mechanic in the band? Yeah, totally. Um, every band, every DIY band should have a grease monkey, uh, should have a mechanic. Uh, ours is Dan. Um, you know, he also welds all the things, contraptions you see on stage. Started with wood, but then due to touring, as you know, it's like everything breaks. It's like, man, I can't tell you how many times little like wood contraptions we had, we had would just like snap in half or do this or do that. So he kind of taught himself how to weld. And it's that was sort of his job in the band in regards to touring and and streamlining things. It's like, how can we save money? You know, how can we you know, be, be different and everything live. Also, I'm, I'm covering, you know, several bases, but it's, he did a lot of research, um, had some great engineering friends. He actually, you know, uh, we all went to college and dropped out (laughs) to pursue band stuff, but he was a mechanical engineer. Um, so he was already interested in a lot of that props to Dan for sure. It was, uh, is really neat over the years kind of seeing all of those things happen and now looking back and I can't believe right we we ran on vegetable oil for a couple <laughs> of years you know it's really really neat and really weird and gross and but we saved a lot of money <laughs> the question about your um about your contraptions on stage obviously you know we we toured with you in Australia for Soundwave mm-hmm. did Dan construct 
those devices while you were in Australia or did you pay for them to be shipped? Because obviously that's a big expense if you did. Yes, the, it was definitely the latter. It was a, a very big expense. <laughs> Maybe it was why Soundwave closed, you know? <laughs> no. Um, yeah, we he had actually, when we first got signed and kind of like started touring heavily, uh, we got signed in uh, the latter part of 2013. And we started up the rocket ship in uh, 2014, uh, and just went heavily touring. All that we've been touring since 2005, but it was more Weekend Warrior or we'd be gone for two weeks, back for two weeks, just doing it all DIY. Um, anyway, so it's like, okay, now we're going to international stuff. And how are we going to get these huge things that are such a signature part of our show and really help us stand out in the sea of rock and roll bands? how are we going to get it there? And it's like, man, it just costs so much to ship it. And then it was literally like, Dan, you got two weeks to build another one. So he, he built another one and we had it sent to, uh, to Europe and it actually lived in, man, I forget the guy, but it just kind of like lived in a storage unit over there for, you know, several tours that we did over the next few years. And we, we did have it sent to uh, Japan and Australia, that specific one. And we did kind of pay out the ass for it. And then we actually in 2016, we, we had to say farewell to it. It had seen its time. It wasn't as sturdy as the OG and we we played Mexico City, and then we just kind of left it in a field. So <laughs> <laughs> that whole idea of um, standing out is that something that all of you guys were on the same page about? Not really much of a an argument. It's just everyone understood we kind of have to. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it that's a no-brainer kind of to any band coming up. You would think. You know, 20 or 30 years ago or or now or 10 years ago. And it's as soon as you start the DIY thing and you start kind of touring on your own and you start playing with bands, it's like, I mean, this is cool, but like, I don't know. You know, how, how are we going to like make this possible and continue doing this? We love doing it. And even... I'm sure y'all can relate. It's like seeing some of my favorite bands. It's like, I'll watch them play. And it's like, if they're not into it, it's like, man, this sucks. And it's like, I love these songs, but now I don't even like the band. So that's a whole other thing. And then it's like, but even if they do just play their songs, sometimes it's just like, man, that was okay. Lackluster. Yeah. And I hate to like, I don't want to shame those bands or anything, but it's, come on, like, this is what you do for a living. It's like, spend time on your recording material for sure. Make it good. Make it badass. Make it stand out. And spend time on your live show too. Make it badass. Make it stand out. You know, it's if we're going, traveling thousands of miles or whatever it is to come here, it's like, you bet your ass we're going to do everything we can to, like, make sure we can come back and, like, deliver a good performance. So, Really, yeah, to answer your question, yeah, everyone in the band, for sure. We had slept on too many floors and, and been, you know, had too much crappy food and everything to just... Our dreadlocks like, of vegetable oil. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> to do a shitty job. It's, we're we're going to do the best we can and, and really, yeah, spend time on how we're going to be different. Where does a band that's coming up draw the line? Well, here's what I mean. 
I'm sure you've seen those local bands or unsigned bands who agree with that ethos about uh, standing out. And then they try too hard to stand out. Um, like everything looks contrived and coordinated too much to the point where it seems kind of like a joke. You know what I'm talking about? I'm sure you've seen that. Like, so where's the line? We were one of those bands. So you start like that. Yeah, yeah. And you go to a point to where it's like, okay, yeah, this is too far. Like we were originally a two guitar band and our other guitar player wore a trash can suit. And I wore like this pots and pans suit and we had this whole like drum line sort of fun routine. And then we would all be on the bass. There were three basses at one time. We played like the Peanuts, Charlie Brown anthem theme. We, we did some silly, silly gimmicky things. And then, you know, after a few years, it was like, I mean, we don't want to be remembered as the trash can band. We don't want to be rock and roll stomp. That's cool, but it's not where our heart's at. And so it really became, how can we do what we do, but in an artistic, um, with, our, with artistic integrity, you know, and, and make it part of the show and one with all the songs in the same vein. So really it just, it kind of takes time to kind of, uh, you know, craft your art and everything you do. Play to your strengths, of course, but you get better at making it work together. Um, that was our challenge. And yeah, I don't know, you don't ever get there. It's like you get better. And that's sort of the point, you know, life and and craft and art is a, it's a journey, not a destination. So we're continuing to do that. You know, Dan's in his garage still building bigger shit and, <laughs> and crazier things. And we're you know, doing the same on all fronts with, with songwriting, with lyrics, with recording, with instrumentation. We just really try to push ourselves, you know, and not, not settle. But John, as, as you know, it's like, I mean, being in a band, it can be frustrating as all hell with just yep. so many cooks in the kitchen. But like looking back on things, I feel like you can relate. It's like, I'm really glad we had all those terrible arguments, you know, to figure <laughs> out this riff or this yeah. part, this chorus, because now it's like so awesome. Yeah. How does the cooks in the kitchen situation get solved with you guys? Man, it's like uh, I've only seen videos of Parliament, but it's pretty ridiculous when everybody's just yelling over each other all the time. Sometimes it's like that. And it's like it just kind of has to go through its whole thing to okay, that was a really good point. But more often than not, we kind of abide by the mantra of like, like, let's explore every avenue, every rabbit hole, every opinion, and kind of just see what's best. Make sure everybody feels heard and not try to shoot anyone's idea down because you, you bet on yourselves. At the end of the day, it's like, what if it is this new idea? What if it's better than the old one? Then awesome. You know what? If not, that old part will still be there. It's okay. Yep. <laughs> it's okay. We can just go back to it. You know, so many times bands are like, no, it's, it's, it's just perfect as is. I don't, I don't want to change it. I don't want to try. And it's like, shut up. Try I've definitely been idea. guilty of that. Just try it. <laughs> because if, if you've been doing this, you know, for a long time, you're going to be creative. You're going to think of something cool and then it might be even better. I've been guilty of that for sure. 
Um, I mean, me too. <laughs> sometimes it's difficult because you know you're you're so attached sometimes to the creative output that you have that sometimes you do get that tunnel vision where you're at the mindset, oh, it sounds perfect how it is, but having the extra set of ears just to sort of challenge what you've done is never a bad thing, I don't think. And learning that is definitely a big part of what it is to be in a band, for sure. Yeah, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I feel like something we learned is kind of having ghost members in a way. I don't know if this works for you guys, but having somebody or a few people that you respect, really trust, know that they're going to not bullshit you and give an honest opinion about a song, a part, a video, this or that. And one to just, right, to hear that feedback and then think on it. And uh, you're right, this should change. We should try this. Oh, our bridge is our chorus or whatever it is. So many times we've done that. Or even just, you know, you know, have guys like this guy, Paco Estrada, um, who's a He's from Dallas. Uh, he was in this band South FM in the late 90s, early 2000s. And now he's a solo artist and he's a brilliant songwriter, singer. And he, uh, we, we just, for the last five records, like we've trusted him to kind of bring him in the inner circle and like basically collaborate with him. But kind of like we do our own thing and then we kind of come to him. And a lot of times it's like, why are you saying all these words or whatever? Just just say that. And it's like, oh, damn, you're, you're so right. Like, that's <laughs> totally what we need to say. Or again, like your bridge is your chorus or like this last riff is like, this is the main part of the song. We have him, we have our, our manager, uh, Will Hoffman, who's also like a ghost member of the band too. And I feel like for every band, they should have one or two or five of those guys that they trust. Not necessarily like, hey, you know, it's like they write with you and everything. And and if it if it comes to that or what whatever, it may be cool, but they're just not yes men. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. I kind of went on a tangent there, but that that's, (laughs) that's the theme. Yeah. Somebody who's going to tell it like it is. I haven't done a band in a long time, but even in business, the yes men thing is very, very real. Um, I think that part of it is that people just don't want to be impolite. So they're more inclined to just say whatever they need to say to get out of the situation with the least friction possible. They're not trying to be They're not trying to lie. They're just trying to not feel uncomfortable. And then some people just uh, have this weird ulterior motive for kissing your ass. And I think the more successful you become, the more you need to watch out for that. And the thing that I've noticed with having trusted the trusted circle isn't so much that I'm always looking for them to have the right answer, but by showing them an idea and talking through it, Oftentimes, I'll figure out what sucks about it just through the process of telling it to somebody who um, is smart and isn't going to lie. It makes me view it a lot more honestly than when I'm wrapped up in it. And uh, oftentimes when I present an idea to somebody in the circle halfway through, I'll just be like, all right, I know what I need to do. Conversation over. Thank thank you for your time. (laughs) And they didn't say anything. Dude, you couldn't be more right. Like I've had that exact thing happen. And as as you continue to do that, it's like you, you're sensitive to those things. Like you pay attention to that feeling that you had. That's like, ah, 
this didn't feel that good showing them this, this, uh, you know, this, this work or, or this art that I've created and yep, I need to go fix it or I need to try again or make it better or whatever it is. But then also having that kind of other end of the spectrum test to where it's like with music, you know, does this give you chills? You know, does it like, but is it really pumping you up? It does it make the hair stand on the back of your neck? Does it give you goosebumps? All those things are like, that's a huge test that in nothing more that we definitely do with every single song, you know, it's like try not to have any filler, any, any shitty uh, song or whatever, you know? I think to a degree, it's kind of like, you know, in business when you see really successful people, like let's just take Elon Musk and he surrounds himself by people that are better than him. When he gets an opinion from one of those people, he's obviously going to trust that opinion. And I think that that is what it is, isn't it? It's not necessarily that you need a set, you need a set of ears of someone that you respect their decision, even if it's not the answer that you want it to have. Um, I guess in a way, the way that you have those people lined up, it's not too dissimilar from a producer. Yeah. Yeah. You're totally right. Yeah. Uh, you know, iron sharpens iron, you know, to, to get all, all biblical or whatever. It's like, yeah, surround yourself by people you trust and respect and not just yes, men. Just because you trust and respect them doesn't mean they're right. No. Which is something <laughs> else I've noticed. Like sometimes you go to them with an idea and they just won't get it and they'll be wrong. Like they don't see a future in it or... It's useful as well though because it's still giving you a different perspective in a way. Yeah. Even if they're wrong. Well, yeah. I remember when I... So URM's got a an upper tier service called URM Enhance and we have this library called the Fast Track Library, which a bunch of little courses. And um, the my whole idea from the beginning was to make it just a an evergreen library, like comprehensive library of everything to do with mixing and production. And um, one of the people who's, uh, who I really, really respect, I was telling him about the idea and he just didn't see it. He tried to talk me out of it like pretty intensely <laughs> about how it's just not catchy of a business idea, like who needs another library. It's our most successful thing to date by far. Um, it, but if I had listened to him, as much as I trust him, as much as I value his perspective, he was just flat out wrong. And that could have cost me big time. So as much as um, it's important to get people's feedback, it's also important to know when you're right and when it's not just your ego. Like there are times where you'll come up with the best riff and it's not your ego, right? Like it legitimately is the best riff and you got to you got to stand your ground because um, other people aren't in your head. Like they don't see, they can't be expected to necessarily understand the future the way you do. So I think sometimes it's important to know when to, when to not back off. But then I guess my question is, um, since I've seen in the studio that lots of bands break up over somebody being right and all the drama that leads to uh, sometimes, how do you stand your ground, fight for an idea that you know is right, not not an ego battle, but legitimately you think is right, without poisoning the relationship? Yeah, you, you have to know when to trust your gut and when to know that I need to have this argument 
And <laughs> you need to be in a place and in a band to where you can do that. Um, I can tell you, yeah, I've definitely been at odds um, and with, with some of the guys in, in the band before, like, you know, really bad, like, like harvested a lot of resentment touring and being living in a hallway and living in a grease van will do that to you. And you learn everything good and bad about these people. But that's also love, you know, learning how to accept somebody for who they are, all the good and all the bad and realize that, you know, I don't want to change you. That's just like marriage. That's just like, you know, relationships and all of that. So yeah, you are married to all these other guys and into like, how do I talk to them? <laughs> how do I communicate this idea? And how do I know that they are going to hear me and they are going to let me talk and I'm going to do the same and have the same respect when they feel passionate about an idea of theirs to communicate. Because that, yeah, that's happened so many times to where it's like, just like you were saying, one of your best ideas and, and things you had to stick to your guns on. And even though you were told it was wrong. From people who are usually right. Right. And, and I've felt the same. It's like, yeah, you trust these guys. And I know like with, with our song Fade In, Fade Out, it's like it was a really personal song to me about my son and my dad that I had started. And I was never sure if it was going to be a Nothing More song, if it was just going to be I don't know, one of my solo songs in 10 years or something. Um, and as time went on, I continued to write it. It just really felt like, I don't know, like I, I think this should be a Nothing More thing. And so approaching the guys, like it was hard to approach them unfortunately, like, I, I, but, but being honest, like it was hard to approach them to like, you know, like be down for it and get on board because I was nervous about it. I was afraid of my idea being rejected. Um, and then it did take a lot of convincing. And um, at times it's like, I don't know, this just isn't feeling right. And I had to be like, dude, like, I'm telling you, this is it. Like, I know that this is going to be strong. Like, I feel really personal about it. And I'm sure they, they obviously probably felt like, Marsh's going to quit or if we don't do this <laughs> song, you know, like to, to kind of, I was playing those cards almost. But looking back at it, it's like, I was right. Like, I can't tell you how, how many times that song people have shared stories about and have helped them through hard times and has been their favorite song or this and that. And it arguably, you know, maybe it's one of our most timeless songs. And that was, you know, a time when I needed to, to stick to my guns in the same way. Like I know I've been on the other side of the fence. I'm not, I'm not holier than thou or anything like that. Cause I, I know I've shot down ideas that have been massively successful and it's like, you know what? I was wrong. <laughs> And it's important to yeah be be around people that can say that because nothing's worse than having somebody argue with you you know till they're blue in the face and they can't admit it and it's like you've proven to them so many times how how it's like but how are you not seeing this and then they can't do it 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 sucks to be around those people and it's it's more important to just get over your shit and say I'm sorry or you're right that's so important. So it sounds to me like on top of the best idea of winning, preserving a good relationship with your band members is also a priority. Dude, yeah. Because at the end of the day, you're people. 
<laughs> you know, you're, you're humans and you got, you got to get along, you know, <laughs> in reality, we all know this, but it's like, man, yeah, you only play a show for 30 or 90 minutes. And then after that, it's like hanging out or arguing <laughs> or bullshit video games or whatever. It's like, that's music is isn't <laughs> a, a, a huge part of your time in, in being a musician, which is kind of funny. It's more like therapy <laughs> and, and, and just friendship and kind of navigating all of that. I think there's two fundamental things that really define how someone takes what you're saying. And one of it is time, <laughs> the distance that you leave between the argument and then replying, but also the way that it's said like with the language, you know, you can say the same words in a different order and someone will understand it differently. And I think that maybe that's part of like understanding each other as people is learning how to manipulate the wrong word, but, you know, manipulate the sentence so that they like, Al, for example, like with your idea about the fast tracks, it might've just been said in the wrong way so that the understanding wasn't completely there, for example. I agree that how you communicate an idea is obviously really important. And that's actually kind of what I was getting at before that um, sometimes it's not even so much the feedback they give you, but it's just the opportunity to present an idea to somebody whose opinion you care about uh, makes you realize what's wrong and how you're even thinking about it in the first place. But Mark, to something you just said uh, about playing that card, uh, the Mark Mike Quick card or whatever. Um, <laughs> I think any time that you present an idea, you're taking a risk. And the more controversial the idea is, the bigger the risk. And any time that you decide to stand up for an idea, that's also a risk. I mean, there's always the risk that shit could implode in anything. Like any time that, you know, whether you're an employee asking for a raise or you're fighting for a riff in a song, or whatever it is, um, you're taking a risk on the uh, on the outcome for the relationship. Also, you're taking a risk that it's a, a shitty idea. And <laughs> you might be wrong and uh, waste everybody's time. But I think that, um, you know, this might sound cliche, but no risk, no reward. You kind of, sometimes you do need to play those cards. Sometimes the idea merits that, especially if if it's for everybody's best interest. That's kind of what I tell myself too sometimes with ideas that aren't landing, but that I know are the best thing is I tell myself that uh, they're going to appreciate this. They don't see it now, but uh, they will. This is going to make everybody's life better. However, I'm completely open to the fact that I could be spectacularly wrong and then <laughs> I'm going to feel like an idiot. But, uh, but I feel like I need, to, I need to feel that way in order to actually present a risky idea or fight back. Otherwise, why would you fight back if you didn't feel that way? You're so right. Just let it go. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's so important to get over yourself. You know, just, like, just like you're saying, it's like, so what if I'm wrong? You know what I mean? Then great. Then then thank you for everybody around here, you know, uh, telling me that it's like, ah, good, good. I'm glad, you know, you, you had this feedback or whatever because this wasn't a good idea, you know. And 
And sometimes that's going to happen. You win some, you lose some. Sometimes you, you know, you, you strike gold and it's awesome. And then sometimes it's like, man, I don't know what the hell I was thinking. This is, this is like the worst <laughs> riff or the worst thing ever. <laughs> Why was I even fighting? You know, and you're right, and your ego can get in the way. Um, yeah, and you do have to keep yourself in check and kind of be sensitive to those things. Is that something that was just kind of natural for you guys, or is it something that you worked on? No, I think it's definitely something we worked on, um, something that just happened over time. I think, honestly, like uh, my wife uh, was a licensed therapist and, and counselor for, you know, 10 plus years. And so <laughs> she can talk circles around me. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> you learn how to communicate pe with people and, and how to talk to them, like you were saying, John, how to listen and, and realize, yeah, when it's time to to give your response and when it's not time to, I, you know, I, I just need to let them feel this out first before I say anything because it's going to fall on deaf ears. And I think through touring, you know, you're around each other all the time and then all of a sudden it's like you aren't around each other at all for a long time. And in those gaps, it's like you really do grow and and you, you watch each other through everything life throws at you and I don't know. That's that's how we all mature. I feel like I know I've personally been to a lot of therapy and it's been awesome. Everybody should. I, re I really should. Yeah, it shouldn't ever be anything that's given a, a thumbs down or, or like this negative connotation thing. It should be something that is promoted and we should take care of, of our brain, <laughs> of our thoughts, of how we communicate these thoughts with other people. It should be something in our schools. You know, to, to like how, yeah, just communication, you know, and not in like this kind of like lame way either. Like get people that are passionate and that care about it, but are like militant about it and and not like dicks about it or too sensitive about it. I feel like there's right. There's a right way to to do all that. I don't know. It just, that just immediately got me thinking about like. Martin Luther King, and it's like how since uh, you know the holiday, I've been watching a lot of a lot of stuff on him, and and to, you know one thing he always said was like it, through the nonviolence, it's like but we're militant, you know, and it's like and how how passionate he was and how successful all of that movement was. It, it's like he he stuck to his guns, and it was it was just communicated in in the best way possible and if you truly stand for love it's like yeah that's love isn't just rainbows and fairies and it's like oh like you let people walk all over you no not at all but i'm not gonna like you know abuse you cause you know more more prejudice and hate you know either it's like that yeah there's no hate and love i don't know i just went on a totally random tangent my apologies um <laughs> That's all right. So when communicating, I guess, that way with your bandmates, I guess, is there that understanding that at the end of the day, 
you are in it for each other. Yeah, there is that. You know, if you're listening, you can't see this or whatever, but it's like early on in touring, it's like we, we all scarred each other or whatever. And for each scar, we wanted it to be for like every year of touring. I can't even see with the camera because the lights are all weird. But there's there's three scars here. So it's like, oh, you've only been touring for three years? No, um, you know, we'd be at 16 or... I don't know. Yeah, yeah, something like that by now. Um, but we decided to stop at three. And basically each scar was like a, a commitment in the same way an engagement ring is to like, I'm not going to give up on you. I'm not going to give up on our band, on this plan to like, this is what we're doing. We're not getting real jobs, <laughs> you know, or we're going to pursue <laughs> plan A 100% and have no plan B. And it was really hard at times, but... Yeah, we, we through thick and thin, um, you know, we have been there for each other um, through all of life's obstacles and business obstacles, member changes, management changes, label changes or uh, all of that stuff, you know, into just figuring it all out. And and that's yes, yeah, so I would definitely say that, yes, at the end of the day, it is unspoken and spoken to at times, you know, that it's like. We're on the same team here. We're always fighting for unity and just fighting to keep, you know, being constructive and growing and and put out good material. You know, that's that's the only reason I argue with you or whatever it is, you know, <laughs> man, no plan B. Uh, it's music to my ears. It's an interesting thing because everyone I know pretty much who's uh made the music thing work out in, in a meaningful way has had no plan B. Um, and I've always felt like music, really any intense pursuit like that, requires so much of you that uh, you won't do what's necessary if you're distracted by a plan B. You just literally won't be able to. You won't have the energy or the time to to do it. And then you're up against people who don't have a plan B, <laughs> who do have all that time. However, if I'm thinking about, about like, what if it was my kid who, uh, who had no plan B, what would I advise them? And if I'm being honest, I'd probably advise them to have a plan B because <laughs> most people fail <laughs> when they go into this. So it's this crazy, it's this crazy, um, it's this crazy thing. Cause I do think that you can't have a plan B. And then at the same time, I wouldn't advise that for anybody. You're, yeah, that's well said. Because now being a father, it's, you're right. Like I would probably be on the conservative side of things and say, hey, Phoenix, you know, ma make sure that it's like, yeah, you have a backup plan. You have this going on. But I don't know, it, it's so important to follow your heart and take those risks and I think the more important part that isn't communicated a lot of the times is say, you're going to fail. You're going to suck at, at, you know, at, at what you want to be good at. And you're going to do a really bad job sometimes. But realize that's how every successful person is. It's like they fall lots of times. They fail lots of times. And it's like you have to know how to fail right. You know what I mean? It's like you, you got to know how to then work smart. That's how you, that's how you always start. You just work hard, work hard, work hard. And it's like, 
man, I'm, I've been hitting my head against this brick wall. You know, it's like, why, why don't I just go around it? Oh, damn. You know, it's like you, you learn how to work smart. And yeah, I think just a lot of times you have people don't communicate that you're going to mess up. And that's really important, like being a dad. It's like that is definitely something like I, I tell my son that, that that's part of it, <laughs> you know. What's what's your definition of failing right? Honestly, it's, it's like it's part of the story. You know, I wouldn't have got to. OK, we we're talking about like the live show elements. You know, had we not done the trash can, you know, we wouldn't have realized how to do the scorpion tail. So it's like we needed that terrible trash can and, and to fail in a way. It's like it, I, I guess that that's, that's a different analogy sort of in a way that I'm saying it's like you have to. No, but it follows. It makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, if you're, if you're getting me, it's like I needed to mess up or to die in this video game this many times, you know, in order to realize that I had been doing this combination of buttons <laughs> wrong until it's like I, I figured out how to do it right, I guess. So was there a conscious thought with the trash can to scorpion tail transition, which I obviously wasn't overnight, <laughs> but uh, was there a conscious thought every time that you upped that game? Were you actually thinking, how can we do this differently? Or was it more of a subconscious thing? Like you already passed that level and now you're just trying to do something new, but you're already better because you absorbed all those lessons. I think it's the latter. It is, it is subconscious, but, you know, taking moments through time to look back and, and see how you've grown to ask yourself, how are we getting better? But more importantly, like you, you both know, the more you spend in your time, it's like the more of an ex or in your, in your art, in your craft, the more time you spend, you become more of an expert in your field. You know, it takes 10 years or 10,000 hours to be an expert. Um, and it's like, you just kind of keep playing to your strengths and you keep realizing these new things and these new ways to kind of continue to invest in yourself and it's like i know i can tell you that with my guitar playing with with mm -hmm. my lyric writing with my melody writing all of those things it's like you you get better and and you you know how to i don't know you just become more of an expert in your field uh because of all those failures i think or it's like all the shitty songs <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> yeah if you don't mind sharing what do you think are some of your biggest failures that you look back on and are like, glad that happened. Oof. What, what to share <laughs> without, uh, um, gosh, I know in, in my personal life, it's like, I, I'm not going to get too detailed here because I don't know, no, some people just don't need, need to Fair know enough. these things, but we, you know, we yeah, all yeah. mess up. And it, I guess it, with your question, I immediately think personally and not like work-wise because it, I don't know, that's more important to me. Well, that's just where your head went. Into, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, into who I am as a person, how I've grown and how I've matured, but into, uh, you know, like having these habits, these addictions, I didn't realize I was getting in my own way. I was hurting other people and I had to fail. You know, I had to realize or get told that it was a, it was a big deal and a big problem that was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Really hurting people. 
And it's like, all right, I have to do something different. I have to make a change. And I think, you know, we hear that most of the time, the only time people are open to change or the biggest change comes from hitting rock bottom. You know, that's that's when spiritual change happens. It's like when when the world breaks you and when you completely fall, you know, face first and you're shamed. And it's that's when you realize you have to do something different. You can't keep living that way. And again, without sharing some of the specifics. Yeah, there's been multiple times where I've, I've felt that that has happened to where it's like, all right, uh, you know, back to the drawing board, so to speak. Like, I, I need to analyze myself, figure out what, how, how, how I can change, how I can grow. I need to get help. I need to talk to people and, yeah, and, and, and continue on. It, and I feel like that's it's important to share these things because, man, we all fuck up. We, we are all fuck-ups at, at times, yeah. and anybody who can't admit that... That's the real problem. ...is the biggest fuck-up. <laughs> yeah. You know, with those kind of moments, though, I find them exceptionally powerful when it comes to a creative kind of look on, hmm. on it. Like, I always found that when I was at rock bottom, which, again, I think it's happened to all of us, Especially, you know, it's it's kind of one of those things that just happens to creative people, I think. Mm. But I mean, I know that the last time it happened to me, it was creatively one of the most powerful times of my life. Yeah, you're so right. Uh, getting back to something you said, AL, yeah, like it's it, cliche or whatever, like no risk, no reward. It's like it is the duality in that, you know, like the biggest <laughs> change comes from uh, like when you're most vulnerable and when, when you... Yep break your your face you know uh, emotionally or creatively or, or whatever it is yeah such a weird human quirk too because if you think about it logically why can't we just do the right thing all the time like we should yeah right i mean logically speaking and it shouldn't take it shouldn't take something terrible to to make us snap out of it but uh for whatever reason i think that that's uh that's just how most people are wired. Uh, I'm actually, I'm jealous of those few who somehow are just wired to do the right thing always. Like, I'm sure you've met a few <laughs> of those, but I actually think that they're, uh, they're anomalies. I don't think that that's hmm. normal. Um, I think that the normal human condition is to, for some reason, wait until the water is like up to their mouth level <laughs> and then start thinking about air. Yeah, that's reason. a great analogy. <laughs> You're really right. Yeah. Not when it's at their ankles. We only have to change when it continues or when it stops working for us most of the time. You're right. Or do you reckon that it might just be the reason why we take those moments where it seems the most powerful to us when we do make changes just because the difference to how we were when we were doing all right to then this new lease of life, it was such a minimal distance compared to when you hit rock bottom and then go back. Do you reckon it's just that maybe we don't notice it? Hmm. What do you mean? Could you elaborate? Yeah. So say, you know, you're in a you're in a good place and then, you know, creatively you can't seem to write. So you have to hit rock bottom to then write and then you think you've come up with the, all this amazing 
material that you've written because of the differentiation between being rock bottom and then good. But maybe it was always there inside you and you've put that against being rock bottom. Maybe, you know, you, you're in the same place. It's just the differentiation between rock bottom and then getting back to good is what you think was the defining factor for this writing. Um, or, you know, Al saying, you know, water up to mouth and that's when you think about air, but maybe it was, maybe you were thinking about it and you, it just took over or something. Do you know what I mean? Well, I think it's just, I'm not so sure that I agree with the idea that people have to be at rock bottom to be creative. And I'm saying that because I used to feel that way. I used to think that there had to be some extreme circumstance in order to bring that out. But I think that that's uh, more than anything, just an excuse to misbehave. (laughs) (laughs) Or not get anything done. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I mean, I do think that there's an inherent amount of torture in self-torture involved in being a creative person, period. So even when you're functioning right, you're still going to have like a baseline level of like self-waterboarding. But that said, we use that as a defense mechanism and justification for uh, for being fuck-ups. And I think a lot of it has to do with the way that creative people have been portrayed in popular culture and in the media and everything growing up, we were surrounded by, you know, our generation and a little bit older and a little bit younger grew up with this myth, for instance, that rock stars have to be alcoholic junkies or whatever, (laughs) or that they need to be bipolar in order to, uh, in order to be actually creative or they need that heroin in order to get into, uh, into that right frame of mind. And, um, I guess it goes a little bit older because you hear about great painters and absinthe and things like that. But I think with movies and uh, behind the music and all this stuff that we grew up with, uh, this idea that you have to be a fuck up in order to be creative kind of got melded. Not for better or for worse, I think for worse. And we've just kind of grown up with that that false notion. Um, also part of that, what feeds that is you hear this cliche of, well, they, that band was good till they stopped doing drugs. Like, <laughs> I'm sure you've thought that. And I'm sure you've heard that like, man, he was so such an awesome guitarist till he got sober. What the fuck happened? The thing that is being left out of that cliche is that he probably got sober because he fried his brain and the creativity stopped before he got sober and he had to get sober in order to save his own life. What we see is that the output changed and we don't see what actually caused it to change. So yeah. So I think that we grew up thinking that sobriety equals lack of uh, creativity, which is bullshit. I totally feel you. You're so right. I feel like it's like a math equation of like thinking of Incubus with Dirk Lance and then Incubus without Dirk Lance. And to me, it's like, well, the, the, the common denominator or whatever, the thing that changed is Dirk Lance. You know what I mean? So therefore, Incubus must... Sorry, I, I really love Incubus. I do. They're, they're one of my favorite bands. But I feel like they kind of... <laughs> they just didn't rock as hard or kind of like lost their edge. I love Ben Kinney too. He's a phenomenal uh, songwriter and bass player and guitar player and vocalist too. He's he's really the man. Yeah, they're just different. But everybody 
including myself at times, be like, man, what happened with Incubus? Why did they just like suck? I guess they, you know, they lost Dirk Lance and it's like, that must have been it. But instead there's, there's always missing components. There's always missing factors. Just like you said, it's like, well, the drugs fried his brain. So that's, that's the factor. (laughs) That's the thing being left out that nobody's talking about. There's always so many things. Yeah. Not communicated and other things. Yeah. That, that had key influence into why, you know, Scott Weiland or whatever didn't, you know, uh, continue to arguably make good music or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> I, dude, I'm a huge STP fan. Like, I liked Velvet Revolver, too. Um, and I, I don't want to talk shit. Like, I'm... But I, I feel like you know what I'm talking about type of thing. Well, I, I actually think that's important to point this stuff out because uh, you could actually be saving some listener's hmm. life hmm. Um, by pointing it out, like, if they don't know that they're not seeing the whole story and they just assume that, well, he was good while he was doing drugs. Right. Then he stopped, quote unquote, stopped. At least that's what the publicist says. And then the music got bad. <laughs> well, and I've seen that in movies. I've heard that in interviews. Gotta be true. So I gotta, I have to do this unhealthy shit. And it's not necessarily like an idea that I have, like, I gotta go get a addiction <laughs> or something. It's more just like, it's okay that I'm living this way because that's part of the deal when it's actually not. I don't think that people come into it with that mindset, though. I think it almost just gets... No, it's not conscious. No, but it's also kind of a product of the environment, isn't it? If you think about it. And I'm, I'm not saying that everyone will, will do that, but you're putting yourself through pretty, let's say, unorthodox conditions with anything creatively whether it's being touring in a van spending 20 hours a day on set for a movie um and going to all these different places around the world and you're doing things that isn't necessarily normal (laughs) and i think that maybe it's just been tied in in the wrong way that so and so did this and so and so did that i think it's a product of the environment more than anything and also a combination of that with the personality traits of that person well, how did it become a product of the environment, though? It's all down to individuals who were okay with it for whatever reason. But it's how you, I guess it's how you deal with that environment. Like, for example, I like to have a few drinks on tour because it's something to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's a product of the environment. And, you know, like, I'm, I got better at it. But obviously there was a time <laughs> period when it was like kind of a bit crazy. And you just kind of get lost in it. That's a product of the environment. It's not that I wanted to drink all the time. It was just like, that's how I would deal with the environment, which was then obviously a choice. But that's what I'm saying. It's a product of the environment and just dealing with what's happening at the time. Right. And that's a a part of the situation we were talking about to where it's like, I don't have to change until I'm forced to type of thing. Cause you're subconscious and you don't realize it because it is the everyday from all of your, uh, environmental factors or whatever, you know, and then something big happens to where it's like, ah, crap, I, maybe I shouldn't have, maybe I need to slow down. (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't start the, you know, doing music because I wanted to have 
all those beers and spirits on tour. That wasn't the reason that I went into it. It was just a product of what happened. That's, yeah. So I think it's a, it's a bit of a gray area on that. Yeah. Well, I don't think anybody gets into music because they want to. <laughs> I mean, some people probably want to have I mean, the, the sex, drugs, and the right, rock and roll. Yeah, sex, you know? drugs. Right. That's. I think that's actually the phrase that started it. Well, sex, drugs, rock and roll is not beer, though. Well, well, I mean, you could argue like drugs and it's like, and one maybe begets the other type of thing which that i feel like you can totally make that argument <laughs> it does but i guess that's it, exactly what i was saying is that that's part of the popular culture that we were that we grew up into that's uh we grew up seeing that in movies and on vh1 and hearing those stories and hearing those stories is what inspires younger people to want to go do this thing and they associate all that cool stuff um with it so a for instance is when I was growing up, uh, all the grunge bands were huge. And the stuff that was being written about them and talked about often was mental problems, drug addictions, making tons of money, sleeping with tons of women, <laughs> playing in front of huge audiences. And all that stuff just got kind of lumped into the same idea. And so then the idea of I want to do what they do. Well, that also equals doing a bunch of drugs, having a mental illness, and just being a general fuck-up. Like, I think that that has been reinforced to us over and over and over because of popular culture. I mean, I agree with you that some people are in it for sex, drugs, rock and roll, but I think we're saying the same thing at the end of the day, which is people get into it for whatever reason that they get into it, but they associate these um these extra things with it that don't actually have anything to do with it for whatever reason and i think at some point some people realize that they can still have the good parts and not kill themselves in the process <laughs> like you don't have to yeah yeah <laughs> that brings us back to understanding as well isn't it and making the mistakes yeah yeah <laughs> no you're right yeah yeah please don't <laughs> Yeah, do all of those things. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the highlight culture, you know, is is what we are and what we have been a product of. Now more than ever, it's the highlight culture. You know, it's like like you see the sports highlights or like you just see on, on Instagram. It's like you only see the good and you don't realize how important the bad is and, or the in-between, rather. You know what I mean? It's like there's so many factors that are left out that have played a part into this decision or into this. So it's it's not just sex, drugs, rock and roll and all of those things. There are yeah, so many little things that make people who they are and make make people's art as good or as bad as it is. Yeah. <laughs> Something I just thought of uh, that gets left out of why somebody starts to suck. Maybe their brain wasn't fried, but maybe what happened was that the amount of time that they spent on it just started to, uh, to diminish because they're fucked up all the time. And so if they used to practice X amount of hours per day and devote X amount of brain power per day towards their art and their career, they stop doing it quite as much because they get wrapped up in whatever they're doing. And before you know it, years go by and they've just little by little diminished at their ability. And maybe it's not even something as dramatic as 
they fry their brain, they're a walking vegetable kind of thing. I think that happens too, but that's kind of hard to summarize for people. And uh, you're right about the, the highlight culture. It's amazing to me how long things take in the real world versus how short or how quick people expect everything to be. I mean, I, I'm sure you know, obviously you know, the process of getting your band started until getting signed, until getting traction. Like you said that you guys were touring in 2005, didn't get signed until 2013. It's a long time. So I wonder if people who look up to you really think about, like really, really understand what eight to 10 or more years means of not knowing where something's going to go. Yeah, there were so many bad shows or shows to only, you know, the bar staff, you know, that we've, we've all played. And those are important because they play a role into your, your whole persona into, are you going to keep caring when nobody else does? And that's important, you know, and into nurturing that and having the willpower to continue on even when it looks like everything is telling you to stop. That's, that's huge. How did you get through that? Like, what were you telling yourself? Like, how did you know it was not a dumbass idea? Like say in the middle of 2008, you're still years away. Yeah. Yeah. That man, geez, that was tough. That was a, that was an interesting year. You say that cause it was Johnny had first started singing in 2008. You know, we had just fired our, fifth singer or whatever and and fifth yeah we, we've had a lot of singers holy shit <laughs> so he's number six i think so yeah yeah he was originally the drummer right yes yep yeah up until yeah the end of 2007 we we made the transition and man i'm sorry to cut you off but let me just point out to people that uh that never settle ah. that's a case of point right there is never settled like six vocalists that most bands break up after their second. So anyways, you were saying about 2008. Yeah. And, and all those changes, you know, happened early on and I'm glad and appreciative they did because they, like we needed all of that for kind of Johnny to get the inspiration and the courage to get really drunk in Mexico in Cabo one night and be like, Mark, I want to sing. And for me to be like, <laughs> I know. I'm with you. And how many bad shows in 2008 we played, how awkward of a singer he was, how, you know, how long it takes to develop your charisma, your, your pitch, all of that. And not being, a, you know, natural born great singer. You know what I mean? It's like he had to develop a lot of that. And and Johnny's the type of guy to like he's going to like buckle down, figure it out and do it and become a master at his craft, um, no matter how long it takes, no matter how many people tell you you suck when you have it in your heart and you know that this is what I want to do. So you asked me that question and it's, man, that's how I do it. It's knowing like at the end of the day in my heart, it's like, I felt like this, what I, this is what I was born to do. I've always loved music. I've always appreciated it. It's always loved me back and changed me. And as I look at the key points in my life, how it, you know, and like, like got me through and helped me through these things and, and remain there. So it's like, 
I had to, and I wanted to, give back, even when, you know, again, everything was telling me to stop and quit and, and get a real job. Right, when, when, when you can't pay your bills, when you get kicked out of this place to live, when you're sleeping on a couch, you know, and, and I don't mean to make it sound so dramatic because we, all of us really did have really big supportive parents and we're very grateful for that. And we would not be where we are. None of us are like uber rich kids or anything. Not that that would change anything, but it's, it, it did, like we wouldn't have been able to do this, you know, without them for sure too. So, you know, it's an interesting idea that, that you bring up about family support, because I think a lot of people assume that parents being supportive or helping out equals a band becoming successful, which I think is really, really hmm. funny because uh, we all know probably 10,000 bands that uh, had like a rich parent or a connection in the hmm. industry. You know, somebody's cousin worked at Capitol Records or some shit and nothing happened for yeah. them. I hear about that stuff all the time. And it's like, you know, you're thinking of the one band that happened to have a good home situation and did all right. But you're not thinking of the 10 or 20,000 other bands who had good home situations and didn't do shit. Yeah. Again, yeah, the things left out, the things unseen that aren't considered. You're right. Why do you think that you stuck it through? Um, if you had no outward um, evidence that it was going to work out, it was just some voice. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, I've I've always been um, a spiritual person, and I just kind of knew from my past that I had been taken care of, and I had been pulled through hard times and situations. And even with the singers, it's like. Man, we believed so hard that this is what we were going to do that we, you know, didn't cancel shows or didn't, we, you know, we, we kept booking tours, even though they're all DIY stuff, because we believed that it's like, you know what, we're going to have a singer and we're going to make this work, you know, from like the transition from like Travis to Trey or from from Josh to Travis, like we didn't stop. Like we, we just kept going, you know what? We're, we got it. We're going to figure it out. That doesn't mean it's, it's like, oh, it's just going to happen magically and appear. Didn't, doesn't mean we don't do, uh, you know, exhaust all of our avenues to find a singer or to do this or that. And we did, and we did find a singer, um, you know, those, those four or five other times and to make it work and, and not stop. And yeah, we just, always knew and I personally like always knew that like this is what I was going to do this is I, even when it looked grim all of those things I just I don't know uh, I, I didn't think that I'd be here right now and like have my own house it's a, it's a small house but I'm I'm very grateful and, and super happy and in a in a position to where it's like I'm a, I'm a little bit comfortable I don't have to worry about these bills or, or that, or man, we are so fortunate and nothing more to be in a position because of how much we have toured and how much we saved, how much money we saved up to where we can just stay at home and write our album. And I don't have to teach 10 lessons a day, you know, uh, like we, we have enough saved up and, and all right. And I don't want to, I don't need to, you know, go too much into that or whatever, but uh, mainly just my point being, it's like, you know, we, we're 
totally blessed and we have been taken care of. Um, and, and I guess the whole point being like, I know from my past, I can predict the future from my past, if that makes any sense in regards to like, it does, it's going to be okay. There, there's a huge, uh, speech that Morpheus gives in, um, <laughs> I think the third <laughs> matrix of where he talks, okay. talks about that specific thing. We are still here. Yeah. We are still <laughs> here. We, dude, I used yeah. to be an intro for, uh, like our set. Um, I think in 2013 or something like that. Is is so epic. Is so awesome. But yeah, that's a that's a true philosophical statement. I feel like one thing that happens when people have been successful for a minute is uh, they start to get comfortable. I think, and I mean, you mentioned comfort. So that said, being that now it's more about maintaining and growing rather than even seeing if it's going to work in the first place. Um, you know, it did work. So now, now just don't fuck it up sort of thing. But that said, what are your musical priorities? What do you do now to make sure that you're, you know, stay, not just staying on top of it, but uh, always developing, especially as a guitar player? Yeah, you're right. You know, some of it is, yeah, you, you do have to be diligent and you can't just wait for uh, inspiration to show up. Just like you were talking about earlier, yeah. you know, it doesn't have to be these dire circumstances or something in order for you to feel something sometimes it's just practicing and it's like you 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 fall on you know you're doing these exercises and then you stumble on this cool riff and this cool thing and out of it kind of is the start is the seed for this song um you know fast forward x amount of hours or time or weeks years etc um so all of that little practice stuff is important that is definitely, I'm pointing the finger at myself, something I don't do as much as far as I, I should be doing more just exercises. But like I just said, most of the time I just get, uh, I have ADD and I just like go off on a tangent. It's like, this sounds sick. I need to write a song right now. And so you'll, I you'll just start do practicing that. And <laughs> you'll start practicing and get wrapped up in some idea. Totally. Absolutely. That that's almost always what happens. And that's kind of how I end up end up writing uh, musically as far as like riffs and things like that go. Sometimes it's a sound or it's like if I combine these two effects and I like do this third thing or whatever, it's like I need to make a song around that or a riff around that because that's an awesome sound. And sometimes it's a chord progression of like these chords are great. I feel like they haven't been used much. And it's that. Yeah, songs can come from all over the place. We, and nothing more, we do try to treat this as a normal job in regards to like eight hours a day. Um, like we all, I, I wake up at a normal time. My, my son goes to school and I wake up with him every morning. Um, so I'm up and I just start my work day. Um, and then I, I shut off around four or five. It's important, especially as a you know, a musician and an entrepreneur or to, to hit the off button. And that's so hard for a lot of, a lot of band guys and people, but to just Please like, tell me how, yeah, <laughs> hey, dude, uh, I mean, getting a family will do it for you <laughs> because, uh, the, the family won't be there no if, if you don't <laughs> and, and you, and you want to spend time with your family, of course. So yeah, you just, you have to turn it off. Um, but 
yeah, we, we sit down and we, we work, you know, on whatever it is. If it is more songwriting stuff, editing, recording, like we all, you know, we self-produce everything that we do. And because of this last year, we've all kind of had to have our own personal home studios. Before we just kind of had two, like Johnny had his, and then the rest of us had one that we'd record, you know, uh, guitars, bass, and everything else for. And, and he would kind of be more like man the helm in regards to producing. But now we all kind of have our own personal home studio setups and I'm doing, uh, you know, 90% of the guitars right here in my garage. Um, and which is pretty sick It's pretty cool. Um, I'm, I'm really, I've been happy and grateful to kind of have my own space and kind of see things through to like my vision, follow an idea all the way till its end until it's like, I'm just burnt. <laughs> Cause sometimes it's like, I don't get to do that. It, you know, if, if, if the idea is shot down, you know, you may yeah. never hear it by another guy because they're like, nah, it's just not cool. It's like, how do you know, man? Like, like it, all this, this stuff is so sensitive. Um, so for you to shit on an idea before it's like seen the light of day is like the most dismissive thing you could do. Just wait, you know, be patient and, and yeah, see it through. I'm guilty of it too. So, um, you know, the, the finger comes right back at me, but that's something we all have to, to pay attention to. Gosh, I, sorry, I get so lecture oriented. <laughs> sorry. Whenever I talk like yeah. this, I'm just like, there's always a moral and a theme to what I'm saying. <laughs> you know, something interesting about what you said about how you spawn ideas, um, that reminds me of what kind of problems I used to have uh, when practicing is I'd have a hard time practicing technique because every time I'd start, an idea would pop up. And um I've talked to lots of guitar players who it's like they don't know whether to practice guitar playing or to write and they don't know how to divide the two and they tend to do the ADD thing where they'll start practicing and then an idea will come up and then they'll just follow that. And I've always thought that if you're that type of person and you want to write cool stuff, but you also want to get good at guitar, like you want to do both. Probably the best thing to do is uh, do what you're doing. And when the idea comes up, follow the idea. Because what's what happens is that uh, you're not going to have ideas every day. There's not always going to be ideas worth following. So on those days, <laughs> practice the boring technical shit when uh, you have no ideas to uh, to develop. And then when ideas do hit you, drop the technical practice and follow those. And I feel like if people just make make that there uh it's either a or it's b um you know either i'm not feeling writing today so i'm working on my guitar playing or my guitar playing spawned an idea so this is the priority um that served me really really well um and i know a few people who have approached it that way and that's kind of like their uh their magic cheat code for being able to get good at both yeah i i think that's sound advice for sure. What about you, John? How do you do it? Pretty much a similar way. I'm pretty bad at practicing these days, to be honest. But you weren't always bad at it. No, 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 not always. And, I, I, you know, I still practice. It's, it, I definitely have to because if I don't, I can't play guitar. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a certain level of maintenance that's <laughs> required. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely does. Well, so, yeah, I think that 
I don't really sit down to write music. I sit down and play the guitar, and if something good comes out, then I'll sort of just keep going with it. But I also have the the mentality that if I sit here in front of this desk, that it automatically means that I'm in the mode to write as well. So it's kind of when I play guitar, I actually play on the other side of the room and try and stay completely away from my desk. Because then, yeah, it's just, it's all down to mindset for me. Yeah, that's a great point. You're right. It's like, yeah, your body is, it knows what it's doing. <laughs> <laughs> ah, who'd have thought? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But I actually find that I write more music when I am no way near a point to record it. So, for example, um, I wrote a riff that I really liked recently. And I, it's because I got an old guitar that I sold and then bought back, got sent to my house. And none of this recording stuff is in my house anymore. So I took the guitar out of the case just to have a little play. And lo and lo and behold, a riff came out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So obviously we're lucky with these things now, you know, phones where you can get it down. That's true, dude. So many crappy voice memos. Yeah. Dude, yeah, it's perfect. So then, yeah, it's like, it's not lost, but you know how you know how it is back in the day. You used to write this really cool riff and then an hour later you'd forgotten it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Oof. Into the yeah. ether. Yeah, and those those things are gems now. We we have this app uh, that we, we just started doing for the band and for like people wanting to be a part of our culture and kind of see behind the scenes on this next record. So all of those little gems, those things, like uh, you just gave me an idea of like, man, yeah, I need to go through old voice memos and share like really bad sounding first attempts at this one song. You know what I mean? Or like yeah. wh how, what birthed that song type of thing. Wouldn't it just be interesting to see, you know, Incubus with your lad what the first demo sounded like of that. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, can you uh, incubus with your lad? Sorry, yeah, English slang. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay, um, I'm, I'm the, just before trying Benny, to understand. Before Benny Grab. Before Benny Grab. <laughs> yeah, who, who is his lad? Oh, okay. Oh, Dirk. I just realized Dirk. I have no idea what the hell you're talking about either. I'm talking about the bass player. Yeah. The first bass player. Yeah. Dirk. Dirk, you said. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So maybe if you heard the demos, you'd also hate that too. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Yeah, right. But yeah, there's there's so so many factors. It's like he could have been a complete dick, you know, and it's like, yeah, he, he had to go. You know, it's like I always, I love that dude's playing and, and I've, I've cherished What record those. was he up to, actually? Uh, like the first three or four, it was like they don't make yeah, so was... basketball shorts like they used to, EP. And then there was uh, Fungus Among Us, Science, Make Yourself, and then Morning. Yeah, I understand why you preferred that era. Yeah, yeah, it's just, I don't know, a little more edgy or aggressive and kind of felt like they had balls and they weren't middle-aged yet type of thing, you know, which every band has Maybe. to go through. And it's like, dude, you, you look at the Beatles career, kind of same thing, you know, it's like when they kind of, you know, got soft or it's like when they got comfortable, just like you were saying, Al, it's like, how do you keep yourself challenged? Some of it's just age. Like, I think in some cases it's unfair to expect our favorite artists to you know, maintain what we love them for. Just because, A, they get older, that just means they didn't die, which is great. And, uh, <laughs> and, because uh, that could happen. And then, and B, also, maybe they're in a different 
spot artistically. They, they don't have a responsibility for us or to us to stay in the exact same place as they were when they were 23 or whatever age it was. You're right. You know, being in a band, you know, there are so many conversations we have that it's like we always try to keep ourselves in check to try and balance, like, is there enough core, you know, nothing more in this next record, you know, into like, like, do we have enough heavy stuff? Do we have enough emotional stuff? Do, do we have like the ballad or whatever? Most of the time it's like, this is what we have. And then we ask ourselves that question. The question you ask yourself is how do you not have that happen to you? You know what I mean? Like, like how do we not <laughs> get middle-aged or whatever? And there's bands like Seven Dust, you know, to where you could say it's like, I, I really like Seven Dust. I'm not going to shit on them or anything like that. <laughs> a lot of their albums are relatively similar, you could say, is, is, a, is a fair point. It's like they've, I don't think they've lost any aggression. Like they've stayed kind of solid, like all the time. I don't feel like they've taken as many risks into changing that sound. You sort of feel like you know what you're going to get. At the same time, it's like they're all kind of doing like solo records right now and, and things, which is really cool to see because uh, I think I shared like one of Morgan Rose's uh, songs like that I was blown away by. It was kind of like Nine Inch Nails meets Peter Gabriel type of thing, like one of the, the last track on his EP. I was just like, man, this is so cool. And to kind of see uh, a song like that from him that's so different um, and I kind of wish I saw some of that more in Seven Dust, but it's like you, you, they, I don't know, you know what you're going to get when you get the next Seven Dust album, and which is comforting, you could say, you know? I think that's like the the problem that every single band faces, though, because obviously, like, for example, in the, the sort of genre that we're kind of in, everyone always expects something more that's quite funny something more <laughs> funny guy but, um, <laughs> holy shit but like but then if you go too far away from the path or you stray away from it there's another band name in there um nice. <laughs> then they will then they'll obviously get the people that wanted you to sound like the previous album just a more refined version of it so i i've kind of come to the conclusion now that it should be do you like what you wrote and if the answer is yes, then who cares? Go with it. Yeah, of yeah. course. I, I agree with that. Like, is it badass? That's yeah. that's the question we ask ourselves. It's like, yeah. And if it's not, then it's not done or it's not getting released. <laughs> it's going into the vault, you know? <laughs> just, to, just to sort of, you know, we were talking about how people change. Is it like that our skin completely recycles every seven years? So does that mean technically we're not the same person anymore? Yeah, that's that's a great <laughs> question. Uh, we were actually kind of writing a song about that. What are those shrooms doing? Uh, 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 nice. Yeah, we were, we were kind of writing a song about that yesterday. Actually, we did some lyric work. It is like, right, your conscience is changing. And it's like, am I turning into somebody else? You know, if you could see you in five or ten years, would you recognize you? You know, your past you. You know, that your views have changed, that your likes and interests have changed. All of those things. It's an interesting thought. Would you? Hmm. Yes. But 
I think I think I would be my my past me would be shocked. I, I think uh, in some ways, uh, like he'd be stoked that it's like, oh, that's so awesome. You're, you're comfortable <laughs> in a way that it's like you don't have to worry about you know where, where you're going to be sleeping next month or whatever. Um, or it's like, wow, you're signed, right? You, you know, you're, you're working on this record, you're self-producing this. That's amazing. Um, and then like personal beliefs, you know, it's like, oh, uh, maybe old me would be disappointed in new me's personal beliefs in, in some ways that it's like, oh, you kind of <laughs> mellowed out or it's like, oh, you you aren't as spiritual or it's like you're you're kind of watered down or something but it's not that at all it's actually the the oldest thing you know that you always hear it's like man the more you know you realize the less you know for sure <laughs> it's like ah, there's just too many yeah. factors i i can't even make a decision on where i stand on on certain things because i don't i need to know like everything that goes into it in order to make like an educated a decision on it and i feel like that's only fair you know <laughs> it's it's funny i don't know what about you al i would definitely recognize myself i'm sure i don't change that much <laughs> though it seems like i do to other people because i've gone through like physical transformations i've gone through multiple career changes so I've, a lot of stuff has happened that from the outside would seem uh, like, yeah, I probably can't recognize myself or something, but uh, no, I would. I feel like I'm the exact same person. Exact. Like, I'm the exact same person I was when I was 20. Maybe not quite as mean. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> so I'm a little nicer. But yeah, I would say it's a hard yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And you, John? Well, if I would recognize past me, yeah, or if you would be, if if past you would look at future you and be like, ugh, or like shocked or, or like, I don't know, you know, like talking to oh, yourself. Okay, sorry, almost. sorry. Few, let me just That's say. That's a lot of questions, sorry. <laughs> past me would be both shocked and stoked. Nice. It's too complicated. It, yeah. <laughs> there's too it, many it, variables, it, isn't there? Yeah, always. <laughs> I think always past are. me would be stoked in certain aspects and past me would also be fucked off in certain aspects as well. Like uh, past me, for example, was kind of obnoxiously skinny. And I know that past me will be disappointed <laughs> that I haven't maintained that level of, you know, fat <laughs> <laughs> the lipid ratio nice. yeah yeah exactly but in but past me in terms of like what has been achieved from what it started as yeah past me would be really really happy i think such a complicated question it's tough but then past me that slept on you know my mother's sofa to go on tour is definitely stoked that that's not happening anymore. <laughs> you know? So this is something that I've thought about a lot because you know um, how some people, you walk into like their office or something and they got like 19 platinum records and like 35 gold records and like 17 Grammys and like all that stuff or like some business person, it's like them shaking hands with the president, like 17 degrees and all that stuff all in their office and which is kind of like proof of everything they've done and i've 
never done that kind of thing. Like I always thought it was kind of weird because uh, like I, I did the things I did. I don't need a reminder. But um, the thing that I've noticed is that since I'm just me in my head all day, every day, and I can't escape that. And since I still feel exactly the same way I did when I was 20 or 15 <clears throat> or whatever, I have a very hard time uh, relating to anything that I've quote unquote accomplished. And so I still feel like a loser most <laughs> of the time. You can see it behind me on the video, but uh, um, I haven't hung them up yet, but uh, I'm putting up a wall of like my entire history in this office. And the reason is because I want to see as an experiment if uh, in time periods where that I'm a loser feeling pops up, if I have the proof that I'm not staring me in the face, will that make the feeling uh, go away? And the reason I thought about that was because if you go by the stuff on that wall, me from 10 or 20 years ago would definitely be stoked because uh, if you write it all down, it's a lot of stuff. But it's really, really hard to actually answer that question accurately because I feel like uh, in some ways what you've actually accomplished and how you feel are com two completely different things. So it's impossible to it's impossible to really know if you'd be stoked or not stoked. I think by other people's standards, I'd be stoked, but uh, they're not in my head. <laughs> so, <laughs> we'll see, yeah, we'll see what the outcome of this experiment is. It's a good one. I think it all comes down to what you value, where, where you place that, and like what would make you happy. You know, stoked, proud. For me, like I do, like I have this Grammy medal. Uh, over here, hang hang in there. It's it's the participation Grammy medal. I mean, which is sick. <laughs> what does that mean? When you're nominated, they send you a gold medal. Um, gold medal. So sweet. The e, e for effort. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it's sick, dude. Getting nominated is fucking awesome. It, it is, and it's something. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. But I feel that more importantly, I have all this fan art and these fan notes and letters and drawings that they've given us over the years. And I know you know this, John, but being in a band, it's like, yeah, you get these things all the time. And and sometimes it's like, oh, crap, where do I put this? You know, it's like, I want to hold on to this. I know this meant the world to you. And it's like, I, I, so I make sure to like in, in the back closet of the bus or wherever I can like stow, you know, little drawings or things away to like bring everything home and to put it on this wall, this like this fan art you know, letter wall that I have behind me because yes, it, it's a reminder of things that I value that what really got me into music in the first place into helping people and to have my music, our music be a shelter to those who need refuge. And so it's like, I, I look at these things and I'm makes me warm and fuzzy, man. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. Do, is it something that will actually change your mood? If you think about it. It is right now. So, yes. It, it does. The, the experiment worked. Yeah, see, I've always wondered about that. It, like, I think you're right. It, uh, it's about what's important to you and identifying what it is that actually makes you happy. So are you saying that having a positive impact on other people is what does it for you? Yes, it definitely is. 
helping people, that outreach, because I know how much music has helped me. And, and so if I can give that to somebody else, that's awesome. Complete. Has it always been that way for you, or is that something that you discovered more recently? I, I guess the reason I'm asking is also because I'm trying to think, like, thinking back to, like, local band years. I mean, who are you really helping then? So something's got to keep you in the game that isn't quite helping people. I would say, yes, it started out that way, you know, from, uh, like, we started as a, you know, Christian band for sure. Um, so there, there was also kind of that mantra of the band to like, we're going to sing about God and how he's, how he's changed things or helping people and all of that. And then, then it did kind of change, um, in a way that was like, I need to, (laughs) I I, I want to, sure, you know, I selfishly or whatever you want to say, you know, play bigger shows, get on bigger tours, do, do better things and have, have success or accomplishment because of where you're at personally in your life. And then kind of now it has really gone back to that because of how technology and culture is these days too. It's like, hey, just go online and, and see the impact you know it's like i don't know that's that's special to me that's really cool that means uh i I guess that helps my worth if that makes any sense just personally into how i value things it does i actually have a question about the christian band thing if if i may go for it man okay so i know lots of christian bands it's weird because at some point in time uh the idea of christian rock or Christian metal, like you never associated the two. Right. But, uh, you know, that's not the world we live in uh, and hasn't been the world we've lived in for a while. But uh, that said, um, so I know lots of Christian bands who have done very, very well, generally great people, uh, generally cool bands. Thing I've noticed is it's kind of divided down the middle how many of them are actually Christian bands. Now, the thing that I've noticed is they all started that way. And I just want to know your observations on this. What I've noticed is they didn't start it that way from a standpoint of being ingenuine. They were very genuine about it. But as they became more successful and uh, their priorities as a person changed, it's not necessarily that they became less Christian or something like that. But uh, it's almost like they ran, they didn't want to make that the point of the band anymore, but the band was successful and it's what the audience expected and so they just kept on doing the christian band thing even though they were still christians at heart and it's not like they like renounced it or something they just that wasn't necessarily where they were artistically but they kept it going because of the audience like they had too much success to just give up and i i don't fault them or anything like that because uh what a what a great problem to have (laughs) what's your take on that. First of all, have you noticed that? Yeah, yeah, totally. In, in other bands, it's like, of course, as you grow up, your views change. That's what happens. You know, you, you mature. You don't believe the same things that you used to. So it's like, you know, maybe your your mission for for things in the first place. It's like, well, that's not really true for me or for us anymore. So we're going to kind of drop that label or whatever. And because, you know, it's 
that it, uh, I was trying to think of like a, a big Christian band that's still a Christian band or like only in the Christian market, you know, like, that they've like developed that business and they're just going to stay that business because it's successful and they need to make money to live. Sure, that, that happens. I'm not going to judge anybody for making, you know, whatever decision they need to to stay that or to change that. For us, it, it just kind of like, well, that's... I don't know. That's not what we want to do. And sure, we're, we're all spiritual guys. We uh, have been moved, changed by by the forces, <laughs> the powers that be or whatever. And we, we sing about some of those experiences sometimes. But I don't know, more than anything, it's like, I don't know, it's something and nothing more. It's just we we hold ourselves to this like being real, being honest, true to ourselves thing and singing about stories like that because we've, I don't know, we felt that they've really connected and because songs like that that hit us and change us a lot of the times have those same things <laughs> in, in them, you know, talking about a story, you know, they pull you in, make you want to know who this person, who this character was, like, you know, like, I mean, great Pearl Jam songs or whatever, you know, Jeremy or um, looking at Ben Folds and the Beatles into uh, Queen, you know, the list goes on. But it's a lot of the times those personal songs talking about personal stories, real change that happened. That Jeremy song, just to pop in there, that Jeremy song, you read what it was about, right? Yeah. And just think a load of us would have never have known that that happened if it wasn't written about. Yeah, it's a really powerful song, that one. Sorry, I just had to interrupt you there. Please continue. No, no, you're you're so right. I'm so passionate about those things because those stories, like, I don't know, they give me chills in the same way you watch a movie. Yep. And it's like, wow, that really happened when you learn that it's like based on a true story or whatever. And it's yep. like it touches you. It It does something to you. And I love that in, in music and in songs. So to talk about like real things and real people and experiences or, you know, or fictional or whatever, too. Sometimes they can still they can totally still be cool. A good song is a good song. Exactly. That's, I don't know, typically what we do. I guess. Is there ever a pressure you feel like uh, from certain parts of the audience to, I guess, go back to being like Christian band at the forefront like, is that something you guys ever struggle with? No. So your audience has just been accepting, which is really cool. Yeah, I, I actually think that it's like our, when we, I mean, when we, when we first started, it, it's like, I mean, you know, we played for years to not many people and into people not really knowing who we are. So it wasn't long before it's like we weren't a Christian band anymore, you know. Got so it. it wasn't really like a change. I don't. I think most people don't. Yeah, yeah, they aren't aware that we ever were, you know, or that's where we started, which is cool or or whatever. I don't know. Life goes on. I think. I will say. <laughs> uh, and Christians are so judgmental, my myself included. When you know, or years ago, I, I'm still human and I still judge. Uh, and I, I do my best to not, um, but to, you know, look at other bands. I remember like, like being a kid and it's like, uh, like seeing these other bands. And then I like, I would like hear them curse or, or like hear about them doing drugs or something. I'd be like, so let down. It's like, like, who am I? The moral <laughs> police into like, and now, you know, you get older and you realize, man, that, 
doesn't matter. Like, I don't know them. I don't really know them. I don't know what's going on in their life. And well, why is there such a pressure to like this group of people that thinks like if, you know, you're, you're good or holy or whatever, it's like you go to this place. <laughs> and I don't know why that matters or is a big deal. And I'm, I'm, I'm very oh, aware. It's, it's like I know Christianity isn't based on works or whatever. I know some sects of Christianity are and uh, Mormonism and, and, and all of that are too, um, which is totally cool, whatever, if you're into that. But in general, like, right, my views have changed to if I know you as a person and we have a one-on-one cool. That'd be cool to know, you know, your life experiences and what has shaped you the way it's shaped you and made you choose this truth into what resonates here. That's it. I don't care. You know, it's like, I'm not gonna, why does this other place that none of us can talk about because none of us have been there? Why does that fucking matter? (laughs) In my opinion, why does it matter what some musicians who you like or celebrities or whatever believe or uh, what their personal take is on things. But it's interesting that you bring that up because uh, for some reason people do care about that and I've never understood it. It's like we want musicians and uh, athletes and whoever is in the public eye to not just be awesome at what we love them for, but to also be a moral example that echoes our worldview, which is really, really strange to me. It is really weird. I've never understood that. Yeah, you're right. I'm still understanding it as to like, yeah, why is that important? In general, it's like nobody likes a dick. You know, nobody likes an asshole. So it's like, okay, <laughs> that's going to be bad publicity for you or whatever it is. You know what I mean? <laughs> if you're if you're a dick, people aren't going to like you. <laughs> but it, right, to, to see these role models or good examples, uh, it does, it, it does encourage me and it does do things to like, yeah, I mean, that, I guess that is somebody that I'd like to have a conversation with or hang out with or would be cool. To me, it's like, yeah, why does it matter what you think about what happens when you die? Like, that's cool. Like, like you can think that this is going to happen and that's awesome. I'm going to love you or be your friend or whatever, still the same. Why does it have to change things? And yeah. it's discouraging when it does for, for people. And I raised my hand. It's like I used to be that way, you know, a long while ago or whatever. I was totally that way. And that's not love. That's not any part of what I was really brought up to believe it's like i don't know i if i were to to say that it's like why wouldn't you choose this or or something like that it's like because i'm not you (laughs) well what caused you to change that belief i think traveling i think touring i think meeting people like traveling is something that unfortunately lots of people don't get to do and so they don't get to just meet other people and become friends with other people that may have different experiences and their world is very different than yours. Fortunately, the internet's vast and covers the freaking planet. So it's, it's easy to get educated and learn about other people, which is awesome. But I think, yeah, when, when you're just in your bubble 
and all you know is you and your experiences and then you just project onto other people you know that it's like you need to believe this it's like that's it's like the yes man syndrome isn't it it is it is (laughs) was it a giant shock the first time you went out into the wider world and saw that there's different ways to live and it's okay no i mean i I wasn't like this hugely sheltered individual or something like that it's like and i never like hated other other people or or anything like that so no it wasn't a shock I, i think it's just like like anything just over time it's like you're I I don't agree with this belief anymore, you know, or it's just, yeah, it's just changed. And I guess the idea of an afterlife and heaven to me just doesn't matter anymore to where I think in Christianity and lots of religions, it, it plays a huge part. And for me, it's just, I don't know. I'm, I, I just, I don't worry about it. And I'm just going to, I don't know, <laughs> live now. I know I'm getting real personal, and I know this is a, a podcast about riffs, and, and we're talking about uh, that's a, we, whatever. We talk about riffs like 15% of the time. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, I don't know. It's more discouraging to me, I guess, just like people uh, like disagree about another world, and then they aren't friends in this world. That sucks. It is kind of weird, isn't it? Yeah, it's sad. So one thing that I've noticed through traveling is that it's really, really hard to really judge people when you've been around them, I guess. I think that if you never travel anywhere, you've never been anywhere, it's not necessarily that you hate people or whatever, but um, it's hard to understand and feel that they're real. You know, it's more of an abstract But when you actually go out into the world and encounter different people in different places, uh, they become a part of your world. It becomes very, very hard, in my opinion, to not just accept them the way they are, because you see that it's all relative to their situation or in general, it's relative to their situation. Yeah, that kind of goes into the point that I was I was going to make about, you know, it's like to tell somebody else like how to live their life when you're not them and you haven't been in their shoes or gone through what they've gone through is stupid and immature. It's because if I were you, I would do the same thing you're doing because then I would be you, you know? And and those truths that you have have made you who you are. And that's that. That's it. So it, it doesn't matter. To go in with an agenda, I don't know, it's just wrong. I'd recommend every single human on earth to travel. Yes. Like just to have that perception. You know, there was things that I believed when I was younger that got completely shattered the the more that I saw of the world. And yeah, the more you understand, the more that your views change. I guess, you know, in a way for me anyway, I was quite lucky with where I was brought up because it is very multicultural in the UK. Yeah. um, With people from all over the world. But, you know, if you're stuck in the middle of nowhere and you only know one type of situation, then you're going to be forced into that situation without really knowing any different. That's called ignorance. <laughs> yeah. Ignorance is bliss. It's literally in a way, what right? it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is that wrong? No, no, not necessarily. And that's, which is totally cool. 
But if you have this idea that it's like your ignorant bubble or whatever, like doesn't have enough space for like you over here or whatever, yeah, then it's a problem because <laughs> you have to mm-hmm. live in the same world. By definition, if it it's ignorance, then uh, mm-hmm. then you're not aware of it. Ah. So it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to say that it's wrong. I mean, I guess there's some people who choose to willingly be ignorant, but I th- I don't think that's most people. I think most people all have blind spots of some sort. I mean, that's the definition of ignorance is they don't even they don't even understand that they're doing it. So that's why I do think that uh, making yourself do things like travel, it's the ultimate ignorance killer because you have no choice but to understand that there's a world around you. You can't hide. You can't uh, be ignorant by just simple omission of not going into the world. Um, so I want to change topics. Yeah, let's do it. Because <laughs> there's something I wanted to ask you about. I don't want to take up your whole day, but you called yourself an entrepreneur. Um, you talked about the app some. I want to talk about the app, what led to that. And I also want to know a little bit more about what role you see for entrepreneurship with being a professional musician. Like, do you think that in order to be a professional musician, you have to be an entrepreneur of some sort? Yes, you totally do. You could say you don't have to if you have everybody else doing it for you. But sort of by nature, it's like, I mean, it's your business. You know, you're creating a business into doing this just because it's artistic doesn't mean it's not a business. You know, it needs to be marketed and promoted and figured out and all all of those things to help it grow and make it sustainable. So kind of tying that into the app. um, Yeah, it's I'm super stoked on this app. You know, bands have been getting into Patreon and and things like that. Um, and, you know, Pledge Music was a was a thing before they folded. Now they owe bands thousands and tens of thousands of dollars, which they owe us too, but whatever. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm stoked about the app because it, it is like this uh, community and it's sort of its own social network, which, yeah, that's just what the world needs, right? But it it is more... <laughs> is it specifically for your band? Yeah. So it's the Nothing More app. Yeah, it's exclusive. If you search Nothing More on the App Store, it's there. And it's a little social network there. We all just kind of like this podcast, like uh, which I think I talked to, I don't know, maybe I talked to you all about, about like sharing this, you know, via there. And there's other interviews and things like that that are on there that you can kind of learn more about each person individually into the band. And if you like the band, you can invest in them more. You know, and and get to know them. That's, man, that's what, like, makes a fan a lifer. And, like, I remember seeing this Thrice DVD, uh, you know, if we could only see us now. And I just, like, man, I just fell in love with the band. Like, I loved that. And they kind of went into, like, each member. And you really got to know them. And we want to do the same thing. Because when you like something, it's like you want to go, you know, see the the behind-the-scenes stuff. You know, in a movie, it's like, oh, what other movies has this actor or actress done? I want to, I want to be a part of their work. I'm, I'm a fan. So this, that's kind of what this is. What happens in the app? And we, Johnny and I, uh, 
have our own like live stream that we do to where we have specific guests. John, I'd love to have you on at some point. That'd be really cool. Um, I kind of pair mine with, uh, I'm a big beer connoisseur. So I have, uh, I will have to figure out how to do it, but uh, I've partnered with this company craft Shack, and they send beers from, you know, all over the nation that they have stored from local bottle shops around the States. But you can go on there and I have like a pick six thing that I do. And this Sunday I'm actually doing the one with Shannon guns of octane, um, which will be a lot of fun. And we just, Kind of like this, just talk and talk about music and life over good, weird, tasty beers. <laughs> um, so I think it'd be cool to do an episode with you over there in the UK. I, I don't know how Craft Shack is going to ship I'm down. alcohol because there's laws, <laughs> international laws. I'll find the same beers somehow. Cool. I'll be we'll, down. we'll cover yeah, the cost sure. or whatever. <laughs> but yeah, that'd be... That'd be fun. But yeah, little things like that. Like Johnny just uh, did a live stream with Jacoby from Papa Roach. And it's just, I don't know, it's it's a cool community into where it's the nothing more community, basically. And uh, I don't know, we're really happy with it. And there's there's big like merch uh, discounts, too, that you can go on. We're, we're kind of doing like a bunch of exclusive things, too, for just people that are part of the few is what we call it. Sounds like the perfect uh, platform to sell your tin can soup. That's awesome. <laughs> tin can soup? <laughs> you know, the one the one that you used to wear and, oh, and right. did drums yeah. on, remember? Yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Has it been uh, easy to get your fans to adopt it? The reason I'm asking is because it's really, really hard to get people to stop doing what their habit is. So like, uh, it's hard to get them onto new social networks. Uh, f- like a, for instance, um, is, uh, URM has our community. Um, w- it's spread out in a few different places, but the mainstay is a Facebook group. And, uh, some people have been like, you should start an app. You should, why don't you have like an old school forum or something on your site? And the answer has up till this point been, well, no matter what the trends are, what the stats are, our community happens to be on Facebook and that's where people are. They're here every day. They're looking at their feed every day. It just so works that uh, having our community on Facebook plays into their pre-existing habits. That's been great. Now that's not instead of anything else, but uh, that was, that was my answer. Um, That's why like we never went uh and started you know started an independent one um so i guess what i'm wondering is has it been easy to get people to spend time on it and uh you know add on to the 19 different social networks they already have sure in some ways like there's there's been a great response people are active on it and we're really excited about it and really it just comes down to is it badass and it build it and they will come type of thing. If this is what you want to do. Great film. You know, just yeah, just just make it awesome. And don't don't worry about like you that it sounds like right, your company or or, or whatever, it's like they killed the idea before they even tried it. Um, granted it's like all, everything that they were saying is a fact. 
Like, there's no doubt or arguing about that. Like, yes, there are other huge social networks, of course. That Yes, people only have so much time in a day. But if you're doing something that can't be got anywhere else and it's awesome, then there you go. You know, we're just doing little snippets of recording the album, just like a behind-the-scenes thing. And, you know, you see me playing guitar, doing this weird effect, you know, working in Axe Effects. You see Johnny messing with, with pedals and producing and, and recording vocals and Dan building stuff and Ben making hot sauce, which he does, which is really tasty, and, and drumming. And we do little playthroughs and things like that, too. So, yeah, if you do it exclusive then yeah, it can't be got anywhere else. And if it's awesome, then people are going to want it. I guess that speaks to how much demand there is for the band and you guys as people. Yeah, that's true. And we don't have the tools right now. You could arguably say, like, we don't have new music. So, you know, there, there will be a lot more people that get on as soon as we start uh, releasing more new music because then it's like, you know, John, it's like, okay, oh, well, Monument's back in the scene or whatever, you know, they're Mm -hmm. doing stuff. Oh, cool. I've forgotten about them for a time or whatever. It's like, awesome. And then everybody listens to your albums and songs again and gets into it. So yeah, it will be a process of converting more people or whatever. But yeah, it's, it's going great right now. I think that app is kind of the transition between just being people caring about the music to people caring about the music and then getting more out of it. Because that's kind of what, like, you know, bands are often defined by their album cycles or musical output. But I think it could be much more than that. And, you know, when I look at one band in particular, it's kind of Matt Heafy, Trivium. Yeah. With what he's done with Twitch. He does a great job. I mean, he was playing, what's that, Overwatch the other day, and 17,000 people were watching him play Overwatch live. Yeah, that's that. It's that's, pretty, it's pretty that's impressive. Awesome. It, it's weird. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine that playing a computer game to as many people as you play a live show to at a festival. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it's pretty wild. It's pretty cool. That's also like the whole live stream uh, show thing. You know, uh, I think Pussifer, you know, they converged all of uh, their. The, the things coming out at the same day. They did the live stream, the album, and uh, all on the same date. And, and you got to be a part of it and get more exclusive merch and everything like that, too. And I think they, yeah, it was like 25,000 people for one show. And I know the numbers, but like, like how much they spent on it versus how much they made. One of our managers uh, manages Maynard and uh, does does all their stuff. So it's kind of cool to hear some of the ins and, and the no's about all that. But that's been a really cool avenue that did not exist, you know, year, two years or whatever ago. It's interesting. Do you think that these types of things, an app or the live stream shows, that sort of thing, like the extracurricular activities that, are now becoming part of how bigger bands just do business. Do you think that it only makes sense once you're at a certain level as far as being established? Or do you think that this is something that bands should start looking into from the beginning? 
Hmm. I don't know because it's hard to say. It's like, well, even if you're awesome and you don't have people wanting or that know to watch you, then is it a waste of time? I think that just goes to it's just a different way to do live shows, you know, because you can speak to this, John. I mean, you too, Al. We've all seen awesome bands with no people being there that nobody knows about. So I'd say it's just a matter of putting in the legwork and putting in the time and the buzz will get around. Yeah, if you're awesome or whatever you're doing is awesome, then people are going to talk about it. And yeah, so I feel like it could totally be something that maybe bands just starting could get into and it be talked about. Because if they did something awesome or had an awesome song, then it would... Yeah, it would translate. That's the beautiful thing about the internet and the time period we live in is that creativity and good ideas can often do way, way better than budget, for instance. Yeah, they can. You can totally hit the hit the jackpot, so to speak. But for everything we are talking about, you got to be careful. There's I'm grateful for our journey. In uh, nothing more. It was very gradual. You know, there there wasn't like a, a huge lottery moment or song that like went viral on YouTube or something like that. It's like we just kind of did steps over the years and we just kind of slowly kept growing. Because if you notice, you, you know, you see one hit wonders or bands like that that haven't been through those dark times, that played those shitty shows and developed that bond with their members or the business sense to know what the core of their business is, when to try this new idea or this new thing and when not to, um, to, to see, you know, who in the business world aligns with your vision and who doesn't. You need to grow that and learn how to know that, all, all that stuff, you know what I mean? It's like I'm, I'm very grateful for that, and I'm, I'm sure you can relate too, John. For sure. <laughs> I know that a lot of people say this, but I actually think it's really, really true that um, success too fast is not a good thing. Uh, very, very few people are able to sustain it because they haven't learned how to properly deal with it. This happens with companies all the time, too, like uh, when they experience some um, an initial surge of growth and go from like being like one or two founders you know, working in their garage to like making a million dollars a year or something, which is not huge, but it's, it's like a lot compared to just two people making nothing in a garage. And, uh, and if they've never had that kind of experience before, oftentimes there'll be too many problems that come with it for them to be able to handle and it'll fold. And it's not because they had a bad idea or were dumbasses or anything like that. They just literally got in over their heads too quickly. If it happens gradually, you're gradually learning how to deal with an ever more complicated work environment. It's much easier to sustain, I think. It's the same, um, same, same with lottery winners. You know, the people that win like hundreds of millions of dollars or pounds, and you find that some of them spend the entire fortune within a decade... <laughs> yeah, yeah, they right. They it got is. in over their heads. They made the wrong decisions. Um, the money can feel cursed. Man, have you read the stats on lottery winners? Uh, no, but I can imagine them. Dude, it increases your chance of dying by murder, like by 
like 10 or something. Let, let me, <laughs> let me look that, this up. Um, uh, I'm looking it up. Hang on. Chances of being murdered. After, it came up in Google after winning lottery. Wow. Predicted it. Yep. Damn. Now, now the government's going to be pinging you. It's like, uh-oh, did he Al just win? They're going to be knocking on your door. Man, <sighs> if I did win, no one would know. Yeah. 70% of lottery winners end up broke within seven years. Yep. Holy shit. 70%? That's a huge percentage. That is. To be fair, though, it would be hard to control yourself, wouldn't it? <laughs> Here's what I think it is, too. So say that somebody was already a multimillionaire and they won the lottery. They probably would keep that money because they already have the experience of exactly how to handle that amount of money. That's not a value judgment. It's just that's already within their experience. They know they know what to do if they've never had that kind of money before. And it just suddenly shows up one day. It's like, <laughs> boom, you're worth $500 million. You barely had $500 in your checking account yesterday. They literally don't know what to do. They've never been in that situation before. It's way over their heads. So in my opinion, it's not so much, a lot of people are judgmental about it and think that they just party themselves to death or something, which does happen sometimes. But I think more than anything, you know, 70% is a huge number. I think there's more to it than just people being losers and suddenly being handed a bunch of money. I think more than that, it's uh, people not knowing uh, how to deal with those insane sums and then suddenly just being handed that, like the end. And then, you know, obviously taking advice from that. yeah from weird people and all right that. yeah it brings out the yes men oh yeah that's yeah. a good Once point again. yeah th 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 there comes the swarm of flies <laughs> to the shit <laughs> for real oh man yeah it's that's scary it, it i mean it just makes me think of lost like uh, i don't know if you guys oh uh, yeah that. Hurley. yeah yeah, the yeah i'm actually watching it again right now for the second time I'm on season four. That's awesome. My wife was just watching it again, too. And I, I stumbled. I was like, four, eight, 15, 16, 23, 42. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Hurley winning $185 million or 155 or whatever it was. Yeah. And he just wanted rid of it. Yep. It's probably yep. not too far away from the truth. It's cursed. <laughs> I've never seen Lost. Oh, dude. Oh, come on. Yeah. I'm sorry. It, dude. Like, no, no, don't apologize. It's cool. You have so much to look forward to. <laughs> Is it one of those shows that if you saw it now for the first time, you'd think it was great? Yes. There, there are okay. a few like uh, CG things or whatever that aren't the greatest. But for the most part, like, they do a really good job at like the whole monster thing, you know, like making it. You're giving away too much. Oh, yeah. I'll stop. <laughs> anyway. That, that they do a good job. I didn't watch it until two years ago for the first time. It's pretty epically good until the last episode. Yeah, so one of those. Once you get to the last episode, no matter what you do, do not watch it. Yeah, just yeah, just stay. Uh, what's in just, in Inception? It's like stay in the dream, or it's like yeah, don't you don't know if it uh, falls over the top or whatever. If it falls over, if it keeps spinning, yeah, you don't know if you're in a dream or not. <laughs> and it's it's kind of nice. This is the ignorant 
it's good to be ignorant in, yeah. in uh, the last situation. I'm giving you a heads up. I know you're never going to watch it, but if you do. How do you know? Because I know. <laughs> Prove me All wrong. Right. But you may have just changed fate now, John. Exactly. Yeah, you may, no. Because you told him not to, he's going to touch that stove. He's going to feel how hot it is and love it. Bring on the loast. Get loast. <laughs> it's possible. That's uh, awesome. Yeah, it's such a good series. Yes. Yes. It's really damn good. Well, Mark, I don't want to take up all of your day, so I think this is a good place to call it. But I want to thank you for taking your time to talk with us. Uh, if you notice, we didn't talk about riffs, and that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. No, it's, it's totally cool. I, I, I appreciated this time, and I'm, I'm glad I got to spend it with you both. I will say, John, I've, uh, I mean, you, you know this already. I'm a huge fan of Monuments, huge fan of uh, everything you do, your guitar playing. Um, I'll let you know I am in the eight-string boat now. Oh, God. You went there. Oh, my God. <laughs> and there's a couple songs on the new album that are a bit beastie. Oh, really? I'm yeah. really excited to hear those. Yeah. I miss you, Mark. Like, yeah. obviously... We didn't spend a, a hugely extended period of time together, but when we when we did, I thought it was always really good. Like, like I really like Soundwave. Even though we didn't get paid, <laughs> it was still one of the best times of my life. And yeah, I remember being just absolutely exhausted in the airports with you guys and just hanging out after the gigs and stuff like that. It was just super fun. We're gonna have to do it again at some point soon. I think. I hope so. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So, yeah, I look forward to it again in the future. And thank you so much, Al. This has been fun. Hey, man, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. I really like what he said about their success being gradual. Yeah, they've obviously worked really hard. I mean, five vocalists in as well. I mean, I know what that feels like. We're on our sixth vocalist. <laughs> yeah, that would crush almost anybody. You know, I'd like to say or think that I'm pretty familiar with the heavy music scene. You know, if I'm being honest, they're not a band that I've been crazy familiar with. I've heard of them for a long time. I fucking love their music. I think they're incredible. Oh, I, I know. But I guess I've always been aware that they're growing. And uh, and I just checked back into them and was like, holy shit, this band's really big. It just goes to show I've been hearing about them forever. Like they've been in the conversation in some way, shape or form for years and years and years and years. And uh, there's some bands like that. They just stick it out and get bigger and bigger and bigger. I think uh, Architects is another example of yep. that band that just stuck it out, um, didn't have like a meteoric rise, but uh, you turn around and one day they're fucking huge. But it's not really one day. They've both been around since about the same sort of time. Architects was late 2004, I think. Maybe early 2005 and the same with nothing more. I guess Architects have been a fairly, like, they've only had two vocalists and two guitar players. And then uh, they've been a pretty much the same lineup throughout the entire years. But obviously finding those right people, as, as Mark said is part of it as well. I mean, I'm pretty sure that if they hadn't have made those member changes, then they wouldn't have been around as long as they have. But yeah, gradual, definitely gradual. I mean, it's quite... Because, I mean, I first heard them probably about a year before we played with them in Soundwave, which was 2014. And it's quite surprising to me that 
2013 was the first time they got signed because that album that they put out was absolutely phenomenal. And at that time, had given them, you know, all that time to really perfect their craft. And it definitely, on that album that I heard, um, definitely shows that all that time wasn't wasted. It was actually just building them to that point. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say that any time is wasted when you've done that well, right? Exactly. But you, you, know, you were asking him the question about, like, what didn't make you want to give up? And, you know, I think that perseverance is a very positive thing. It's whether or not you can handle it as a person. Yeah, well, it's not for everybody. It's not. It's definitely not for everybody. And also, just because uh, the band life isn't for everybody doesn't mean that uh, the musician life isn't for them. I think that there's uh, plenty of avenues for being a professional musician that don't involve dealing with six different vocalists. <laughs> Just depends what you want out of it, I guess. Oh yeah, completely. Yeah, it's understanding your goals, I think. Yeah. How long have you known yours? Since pretty much before I started playing guitar, actually. How so? I've said it before in previous episodes of this, it was when I saw Bon Jovi's Wanted Dead or Alive video. And I saw them playing in front of hundreds of thousands of people and having their own jet plane. And it was just that moment I was like, I want to do that. Monuments is no way near that level at all. Um, the likelihood now is probably never that it will ever get to the point where we own our own jet plane. But we still have careers in the music industry. So I would say that the goal has been achieved. So not having a plane didn't make you want to quit? No. I think that, you know, your initial first thought of what you want it to be develops over time, you know. And, you know, you're getting that that wall behind you so that you can see your achievements. And I think that understanding your achievements is a way to think, all right, I've done all right. Yeah, I don't have the plane, but do I need the plane? <laughs> well, I mean, nobody needs the plane. Exactly. No one needs the plane. It would just be fun, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I think that that shit probably looks better in movies and uh, photo shoots than in real life. I can imagine it's a pain in the ass to actually own one. <laughs> and I think that shit like that's never as cool as you think it's going to be. It's very true. I think just we as humans, we always kind of want more. So like when you've got the plane, then what is it next? Do you know what I mean? It'll just be something else that's crazy. Bigger plane. <laughs> <laughs> access, access to version Galactic or SpaceX. <laughs> yeah that's i mean that's exactly it once you have the plane you, you want the bigger plane i'm gonna own my own planet from playing guitar yeah but the question is will you ever visit it that's very true <laughs> i mean you can own a star right now and have it named after you do you have to pay for it they, well yeah how does that work <laughs> i don't know somebody somebody uh is the central the central office for uh star ownership or something yeah, it, it doesn't make any sense. But uh, yeah, you can have a star named after you. I'm not sure that anyone living near that star would know that it belongs to you. And <laughs> They probably don't If there's care. anyone living near it. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know how it works. But uh, I mean, you can do that. And you should. Just don't try to visit. Duly noted. <laughs> All right, man. It's been a pleasure. I'll see you next week, Al. All right, cool. Thanks for listening to the Rivard Podcast. We'll see you next week.